Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Smack bang in the middle of summer. And, of course, it is cricket time. Lots of it. Well, lots of it in terms of fixtures. Not so much of it uh, in terms of duration, particularly here in South Africa. But, as always, we try and follow the cricketing activities from around the world. And today, we're going to try and, in as best a possible way, in as short as possible time, try and explain what exactly is going on in the world of cricket. Uh, It's a very topical subject at the moment. So we have Tom Moffat, the Chief Executive of FICA, the Global Cricketers Voice, the Federation of International Cricket Associations. And Andrew, if you don't mind, I'll say hello to Tom first. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Louis, thank you. Nick, great to be here as well. And, uh, of course, Andrew Bretzke, who is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the South African Cricketers Association, a regular guest of ours on the show. Welcome again. Happy New Year. Thanks, Louis. Let's hope it's a good year. So, Tom, let's start off with you, if we may. Um, we've obviously explained on many occasions, thanks to on, uh, Andrew, the situation with the South African Cricketers Association. But tell us a little bit about FICA and what exactly your role is, not only at FICA, but FICA's role as well. Yeah, so FICA's existed. Um, we're effectively the world players body in cricket. Um, we've existed for nearly 25 years now. And um, although we've we've been a small organisation, we've achieved a number of um, of, of important outcomes for players and, and the players' associations and players that we represent around the world. Um, really, the, the history of our organisation started with the Australian Players Association and the English Players Association coming together in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, really with a view to making sure that players had a say and had a voice at global level on a number of the global issues um, and decisions that were being made impacting players and their careers at ICC level in particular, um, but also the, the issues that were common to, to players across both those countries. And um, South Africa and New Zealand joined shortly thereafter with, with SACA and New, Ze- New Zealand Players Association. Um, and we've now grown to a situation where there's 13 countries, players are affiliated to FICA. Um, and we've, we've helped a number of the smaller countries in recent years, um, the islands, Scotland, Netherlands, and, and most recently the US get organised and, and help players in their countries to make sure that um, that they've got a, a representative body in, in their territories that can help players and, um, and help to p- protect player rights and make sure that someone's looking out for their well-being as well. So um, that, that's a short crash course on the history, really, um, and, and very happy to, to go into more detail as we go. Absolutely. And, and Andrew, obviously, it was a no-brainer for South Africa to get involved and to fall under the FICA umbrella. Yeah, well, well, actually, Tony Irish, who, who obviously started Saka back in 2003, he's been an instrumental player in the development of FICA over the last 25 years. Um, and he's still involved. He, he sits as a non-executive board member. So so it's, you know, effectively, Saka played an active role in FICA. And actually, when Tom started back in, I think, 2015-16, um, his first year in, in FICA was actually sitting in the Saka office here in Cape Town, uh, learning the ropes. So... Yeah, it's, I think one of the great things about FICA um, is that amongst the, the countries, amongst Australia, us, there are absolutely no barriers or secrets. We share everything. Um, and that gives us a significant advantage over the boards who don't share everything amongst each other and, and keep each other in the dark. So um, I can ask my colleague Todd at, at the Australian Cricket Association, let me understand that, that deal you've just gone into, and he'll, he'll give me the details. So it places us in a very powerful position um, as players to to have access to to each other, 
And then, of course, um, Tom could go into it, but it could take more, more, more time. We're members of World Players, which is all the player associations in the world, not just cricket, and where we've also got access to information. And Tom actually sits on the board there. So the player movement in the world is very strong and, and getting stronger. And, and we, it's important to us, and we're proud to be part of it. Tom, as a first-class player yourself, uh, having played for South Australia way back in 2010, I know it sounds way back, but 14 years in cricket has been an awful long time. What changes have you seen negative and what changes have you seen positive? I understand it's a broad question, but a lot obviously has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm pleased you didn't um, recall my statistics as a first-class <laughs> player as well to appreciate that. Um, but look, I've I've been fortunate to see the game from a number of different perspectives. Obviously, obviously as a, a player initially, um, the the short time that I had in the professional system here in Australia, um, and and moved through into the players' association movement. Um, actually, I started outside of cricket in in football, soccer, football, um, and and moved into to cricket, and have been at FICA for a number of years. And I think one of the things that's always struck me is that. By most metrics, cricket is the second biggest sport in the world, um, and it's it's really sport for choice. And there's there's so many great things about our game and and the multiple formats that we have as a sport, um, and that that that's something that's the envy of of other sports. And to Andrew's point on the the World Players Association, of of I've just come off a few days of a conference with some of the World Players Association people from different codes and different sports around the world. And that's definitely one thing that they always comment on in, in relation to cricket. Um, but probably one of the biggest issues that I'm assuming we may move on to discuss is really how all those different formats interplay with each other um, and how we as a sport are able to come together and um, and, and set up a structure for the game and, and in particular scheduling that can, um, that can facilitate a perhaps a, a clearer and a better structure for the game to make sure that all those formats and all the great things that, that our game offers can come together in a bit more of a coherent way. Um, and that, that's incredibly complex. And that's one of the things I've definitely learned probably having the, um, the bird's eye view that I do in my role and, and working with colleagues around the world like Andrew and the South African players um, is, is having some real insight uh, under the hood of, of how the back end of the game works, I guess, and how it all hangs together and, and what drives decision-making and, um, and how those things operate. So I think incredibly complex in, in some ways, but we are, you know, we're, we're sport for choice in others. Like a typical Australian asking for the bouncer to be bowled at his head as quickly as possible in the interview. <laughs> Tom, when we look at cricket as a whole at the moment, and from the outside looking in, and let's be honest that we, we are all laymen of the game, we lovers of the game, um, some of us perhaps a little bit more than others. It appears as though cricket is being dominated not by the International Cricket Council that's supposed to run the game, but by an organisation called the BCCI. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, look, a number of years ago, um, you know, the, the ICC effectively changed from a, a, a global governing body into a, what what it um, acknowledges is a members organisation. Um, and that really changed the dynamic of, of how decisions are made um, and how how decisions are driven in our sport. And it's it's become a situation where the majority of decisions in the game, um, in particular relating to scheduling and, and how the game hangs together, are, are driven by national governing bodies, um, not necessarily by the ICC itself um, when we're talking about scheduling and, and those kind of things. So um, there's no doubt that that's an issue in terms of um, the, the issue we were talking about before um, with, with the structure of the game, um, because ultimately if you've got decisions being driven, when we talk about international cricket, 
decisions being driven effectively by the competitors um, and not necessarily by um, you know our body at the top that that's um, that, that's trying to look out and, and bring the thing together holistically and, and look out for the, um, the the game globally, then you're always going to get a different outcome than if it was the other way around. So there's no doubt that that's one of the, um, the d- dynamics in our game that's that's quite unique. And obviously the um, the power base in India and the you know the, the, they've brought many fantastic things to the game. Um, and 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 the IPL is probably a great example of that with um, with the evolution of the game on the back of that. Um, but there's no doubt that obviously. Regionally, there's um, you know that there's different interests around the world um, in terms of what the priority is. Andrew, let's move on to you now, um, if we may. Obviously, there's a very hot topic that's being discussed right now in South Africa and cricket. South, Af- South Africa's involvement in the stripping of the captain of the South African Under-19 team. Firstly, do those players in the Under-19 team fall under SACA or not? Louis, some of those players do if they've got professional contracts, and there are a couple who have. So some of those guys have who have been contracted in the, in the SC20. So effectively, they, they are members in that regard. Um, our, our concerns around, around the issue, if I can just jump in, are, are more recent around the security report. There's specific protocols that need to be followed around security um, relative to our agreements with Cricket South Africa, um, and it doesn't appear as if they've been followed, and, and that's an issue we've taken up with CSA. In, in terms of the most recent issues that have, have arisen. So how, how I know the tournament starts tomorrow, um, and I know that Cricket South Africa are having a meeting today to discuss how they're going to beef up security. You would think with us going to host the 2027 World Cup in South Africa, we hope that the day before that tournament starts, Cricket South Africa aren't deciding on the security measures. Well, if you go to the protocols that are in place around security, um, and that's not just for, for our agreement with, with SACA and, and Cricket South Africa, it goes to the ICC agreements with, with its members in South Africa, is there are always security consultants who are contracted to undertake security assessments. So, for example, if a South African team approaches team men or women travels to uh, another country, then we actually, as SACA, go to FICA, which is part of our service with FICA, to ask for a security report. And they get international experts to give us a comprehensive security report of, for example, what are the risks associated with going to Pakistan at the moment? Uh, CSA do the same with their security consultants, and then we compare notes. And if there are issues, then we look at how do we mitigate risk relative to the issues. So security, safety and security is a massive thing for, for FICA and for SACA. Um, so this shouldn't be an issue if one follows the protocols. Um, and we have company in South Africa, NSA, who do CSAs work, they're doing the ICC's work, and, and effectively they do the comprehensive security assessments and then work out what are, what are the requisite security measures that need to be in place relative to risks that are identified. And I think that the, the problem at the moment, we've got the security consultants effectively have gone out and done that, yet now there's other information, so where are we at with the security? And that's a, from a SACA point of view, and a FICA point of view, that's the concern. We want our players to be safe and secure. So we want the information to be correct. We want the appropriate measures to be in place to ensure that, that our players are, are safe. And Tom, did you guys, or were you at all as an Australian and a 19 team, warned about possible security breaches here in South Africa? Were you warned of any possible incidents at the grounds? 
in short, no, um, not at this stage, and um, and we'll be continuing to to talk to the ICC guys about it. Um, as Andrew mentioned, it's um, you know that there really is a template process in terms of how how security issues and and those reports are, are dealt with around ICC events, and um, and that's something that we'll continue to do, obviously in, in the lead up to the the start line, and also during the event as well. Now, I, I know this. I don't really want to put you on the spot, to be perfectly honest, with regards to this question. And I understand if you need to sort of tiptoe around answering it, but I've never known an Australian to tiptoe around answering anything. The World Cup, the Under-19 World Cup, was taken away from Sri Lanka because government interference. Now, we, we don't have proof that there's government interference in South African cricket, but this is not a new thing where governments get in, interfere in national bodies how does an organization like yours try and keep it to um, as little interference as possible look ultimately the mandate on, uh, on on governing the game doesn't doesn't sit with us and the players fortunately that's that's up to others to uh, to run the game but i think can completely understand the you know the desire and um, in the game to keep sport and, and, and government separate whether that's at international level or at domestic level and i know the icc um, have a number of rules in their constitution around dealing with that as well. So, look to the extent that there's there, there are any decisions to be made on that. That's uh, that's obviously up to the powers that be. But you know, clearly, we want um, governance of the game around the world, whether that's at global level or domestic level, to be um, to to be based on what's right for the game um, as a whole and uh, and in each country around the world as well. Uh, Andrew, we, we spoke last year towards the end of the year and we were talking about the importance of the Indian tour to South Africa in terms of the finances that it brings in, particularly for the Western Province uh, Cricket Association and others here in South Africa because funds are obviously something we generally need. Um, how much damage did a one-and-a-half-day test match at Newlands do to bring in those funds in? I don't think it was a great tour uh, in terms of Time. Even the the pink ball test, if you recall, was a was not a great game. It was a, a short game, which isn't good for sponsors. So it doesn't necessarily create goodwill um, in terms of your sponsors. So the the tour happened, which is good. So the broadcast deal was complied with, and the, it's actually the broadcast deal that is the significant revenue over a billion rand for cricket South Africa. So they they nice ticks in in that box. Um, obviously, from a, a Western Province perspective, and, and remember, Western Province were effectively subsidized and CSA took over the running of that test match effectively because they, they couldn't do it themselves. So they, there would have been disappointing uh, losses there relative to that test being so short. Um, in some ways, uh, it's probably important that it happened because it, it shows how dysfunctional Western provinces become across the board in terms of, you know, people talk about the structure of the stadium um, it was poor, but we forget the fact that that also goes for the pitch, for example. So, so it, it wasn't a great summer for a number of those reasons, but it was a great summer in that India came and the tour was fulfilled and we got our broadcast deal. Um, the challenge is how we move forward with some of those challenges and, and sort them out. Tom, you obviously need to wear two hats um, in terms of looking after the players, which are most probably are ultimately the most important part of the game. Uh, but at the same time, you need to kind of abide by the unions that, Australian cricket, South African cricket and others to make sure that the game actually takes place and there are venues for it to take place in and that stadiums are utilised as much as possible. I know in South Africa we have our problems. What's it like in Australia? I think that in any country, I think there's constant um, debate around where particular 
test matches or, or international games may be. And I think that that's the same across countries. And I think we're fortunate here in Australia to have some great venues um, and some iconic world-class venues really. But um, certainly from a player's perspective, I don't think there's, um, you know, the, the, there's never been certainly across my desk any significant issues with the way those venues come together and um, and, and the quality of them um in, in particular. Tom comes from Adelaide, which he often tells me is the second most livable city in the world or something. <laughs> it's a good spot. Um, and, and I was there last year and we went to the Adelaide Oval um, and we had a bit of a tour around the Adelaide Oval. And I was blown away how phenomenal the Adelaide Oval is, um, it, just in terms of its structure and how neat and tidy and professional everything is. But I think the recipe that the Australians have got right, which we are going to have to adopt in South Africa, and Adelaide Oval is a good example. It's a multi-purpose stadium. So a lot happens there. They have a drop-in pitch. Um, so, you know, they, they play Aussie, Aussie Rules football there. They have concerts there. They have events there. They, Newlands cannot, I believe, survive as a stadium unless it becomes multi-purpose. If you become multi-purpose, it probably does can't have a cricket wicket there for 12 months of the, of the year. And we need to start thinking out of the box big time for our stadium to survive and think about drop-in pitches and becoming more multi-purpose. Because if you're more multi-purpose, then the local authorities are more interested in getting involved in what you do because if it's just cricket, the city of Cape Town aren't really going to be involved. But if it's multi-purpose, they can use it. So I think there's a lot for us to learn from, for example, going to the Adelaide Oval. And I think, Tom, a lot of those other grounds are similarly multi-purpose across many sports and events, which means they're viable. And if a stadium's not viable, you go bankrupt. And we only have three viable stadia in South Africa, and those are the big three up, up north, specifically uh, Centurion, Wanderers and and then Durban. Um, and yeah, we have to make that mindset of change, which I think Australia did a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, th- I think you're spot on, Andrew, um, with, with the multi-purpose piece. And I think pretty much all of the major um, iconic venues here have done that. And probably the only other thing I would add there as well is um, we're in, in the middle of the Adelaide test at the moment, actually, um, which looks like it may be relatively short one. But um, one of the things that they do brilliantly is also making it an event and a, a, a carnival type atmosphere. Obviously, the cricket's on, but there's also other things going on um, out the back with with live music, and they've they've made it a real event beyond just the cricket as well. Um, and I think they've done that fantastically well at that venue in particular, but that that's rolled out in a number of others as well, which is a great recipe too. Tom, you talk about the test match going short in Adelaide at the Adelaide Oval. Obviously, the ones here in South Africa didn't last very long, and I can't actually remember when a test match went to five days without weather interruptions and it ended up in a draw. So that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Um, are the players playing too much white ball cricket and is the red ball game beginning to disappear from the scene or is it still going to be there in 20, 20, 30 years' time? Oh, look, we, we really hope so. Um, we, we love international cricket and, and red ball cricket and speaking to players around the world, there's no doubt that there's, there's still an appetite for it. I think the reality is with with how the game's evolved, um, and particularly with with what I mentioned earlier in, in in terms of the structure of the game and the fact that international cricket and Test cricket is often competing with domestic leagues um, in in the calendar, and and ultimately that's set up a system in which players have a choice um, as as to where they're playing at a point in time, um, and we're seeing more and more around the world that. The value um, and the, you know, the 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 economic proposition for players is increasingly big in the domestic league, so that's driving um, some decisions that players are making that are perhaps drawing them away from international cricket. Um, and ultimately, if if the smaller and 
and mid-tier countries in particular aren't able to retain their best players, um, then that's that's a big issue, obviously, for the, the quality and, and the ability for, for Test Match Cricket and International Cricket to stay sustainable outside of ICC events and World Cup. So um, that, that's one of the biggest issues we've highlighted for a number of years, um, and, and Andrew has, has, I know, done the same thing in South Africa as well. Um, and all of those things we think have solutions if there's a genuine will for the game to come together to solve those issues globally there is um there, there are solutions to those issues and um and we talk often about things like scheduling windows um and, and empowering some global leadership around structuring the game around some scheduling windows that mean that international cricket and domestic cricket can coexist alongside each other um because we want to we, we want to see both of them Drive, and we don't want to see it be an either or or, or one way traffic moving forward. Let's just quickly mention that test match in, in Adelaide at the moment for those people that are listening that are interested. Australia scored 283 in reply to the West Indies, 188 all out, and the West Indies collapsed this afternoon, 73 for 6. Australia lead by 22 runs with four wickets in hand, and that'll continue tomorrow. Oh, hold on a second, we've got an Australian on the line. Uh, 6 for 73, sorry, Tom, so you can understand that because we do it the other <laughs> way around here. Uh, Andrew, uh, we, <laughs> my pleasure. Andrew, we've heard uh, what Tom's thoughts are. How difficult is it? from a South African point of view, where we've had so many test cricketers, red ball cricketers over the last six months or so, and even less retiring from the long format of the game. Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, and if you go back to 2015-16, Tom will remember, you know, Fika said to the ICC, if you don't start managing the proliferation of these T20 leagues, then, then effectively um, we're going to have a challenge around maintaining international cricket. And we've at that point... What's also happened, puts pressure on the boards and on the players, is the value of Test cricket in terms from a broadcast point of view has diminished over time. So a, a T20 against India last season, yeah, was worth about eight, nine million US dollars to Cricket South Africa, whereas the Test match, my understanding was, was worth about three million US dollars. So if Cricket South Africa had, had their way, they would have probably paid eight T20s because it would have been much more valuable than what the, the two ended up being. Um, and that also translates into obviously how players can earn money um, because you can effectively earn significantly more money playing franchise cricket around the world. So we, we've got to try and create this balance. And from a SACA perspective, our biggest objective in negotiating the CSA is to get to a point where a South African cricketer has three core sources of income. And we're talking about our top marquee players. There's an IPL contract, there's an SA20 contract, and his South African contract. And with those three contracts, he can, for example, earn 20, 25 million rand, which means he doesn't have to go and play in a number of smaller leagues around the world. So we have to rethink how we contract players. We have to rethink how we contract them from what their contract looks like. So we're negotiating a hybrid contract with Cricket South Africa, where a player can still be available for certain formats, but also play leagues and not be fully contract. Um, I think one of the challenges we face in South Africa is that there are too many people, specifically in administration generally, who think cricket is what it's always been. Cricket is so different now to what it was two years ago, five years ago, and majorly different to 10 years ago. And unless you start thinking out the box, thinking laterally and being a bit more creative, um, and like Tom says, that goes for the ICC too, to say, you know, let's, let's create windows where, where certain events happen. If we don't do that, then, then formats will die. And, and test cricket might be the one that dies if we don't become creative. That's a massive challenge to everyone involved in the game. Tom, are there other associations around the world that are having a similar problem to South Africa? 
Yeah, look, I, th- I think everyone, and, and to Andrew's point before, the players' associations share um, everything really. So there's we, we've got a great insight into the um, the challenges in different parts of the world, and I think that this issue is not new. Um, and the, the reality is, it's probably for the smaller and mid tier countries. This issue, this issue has been bubbling around for for the best part of a decade, really. Um, and that's purely based on um, to Andrew's point that if you can earn a significantly greater amount of money for um, for a, a much smaller time commitment, um, effectively doing the same job, then the decision becomes pretty easy for uh, for a lot of players around the world. Um, and you know we, we, we've seen in the West Indies in particular, they were probably the canary in the coal mine a little bit early on with this issue, with a number of their players leaving the West Indies set up to go and play in domestic leagues. Um, we we see it in New Zealand with with some early retirements there, and increasingly where I'm sitting in Australia um, and in in the UK as well, it's now becoming a much more discussed issue in those parts of the world, uh, both amongst players um, and generally in the media as well. Which ultimately we think is a good thing because if those bigger countries are starting to be impacted, then that probably puts us closer to, to some decisions that might be able to get ahead of the issue um, and a number of the issues that we've been talking about as well. It must be extremely difficult for you and for Andrew, for the same, for that matter, when a player who's never played test cricket is earning an absolute fortune playing white ball cricket. Um, and you guys turn around and say, well, you know what, guys, you need to look after the red ball game for the future of the game. And they must be thinking, but hold on a second. I'm earning an absolute arm and a leg. I'm paying my dues. And yet you're worried about the future of the game. The game is healthy. The game's got lots of money in it. Or is it not quite so? I think when you survey players, they still want to play red ball cricket. It's still the ultimate test. And obviously it's not every player, but the vast majority of players still want that test of playing red ball cricket. So as long as there's that appetite there, I think it's a case of getting the balance right. Um, so I, I don't know what you think, Tom, but you know, from our players, that still comes through. I, I want to play red ball cricket. I want to test myself against the best bowler who doesn't have a limited run-up and I don't have to hit him out the park. So that's always there. But how do you say, and this is a question to both of you, how do you tell a guy, I want you to play Red Bull cricket, but in South Africa, for example, you're only going to play four tests in a whole year, and they might end in two or three days. So I can't rely on that short time span on a cricket field. I want to play. Yeah, that's problematic. And, and we need to have a better schedule around test cricket. We need to have more of that first-class cricket. Um, and, and that goes to administration. Uh, we again and again to be creative. We're going to have to play some Test cricket during the IPL, just without our marquee players. We will play Pakistan. Yeah. We're going to have to play Test cricket during August in the high felt because the calendar just doesn't allow us to just have cricket in the summer. So you, you've got to think differently to actually increase your ability to play that format. Tomo steps away from closed stadiums, stadiums with roofs on like they've got at the tennis in Melbourne at the moment and one or two other stadiums to alleviate this problem of summer and winter and rain and so on. Is there a quest that I'm on to get the game to be played more at other times of the year when the weather might not be so conducive? Was it not possible? Yeah, well, there's no doubt it's possible. Um, I think it, that's actually been an issue. Um, I think there's there's been quite a lot of media and, and player commentary around the the early ending of test days um, for, for light in particular. And uh, I think it was the recent series between Australia and Pakistan. And, um, you know, the, the multi-purpose stadiums that have a roof on them can obviously be one of the answers to, to that issue, as well as other, obviously other inclement weather too, which is, you know, we're, we're in the unique position in our sport uh, where we can't 
play through a number of different types of weather. So there's no doubt that that um, that, that would solve some of those issues, but that's obviously got to be balanced up with, you know, if, if different countries and, and cities around the world are looking to invest in that kind of infrastructure, there's obviously a big cost associated with that in addition to the other cost bases that, that exist in the game as well. So look, it, I, I think it's a it's a great concept, but as to whether it's, you know, it, it's, it's going to happen in, more than a handful of venues anytime soon. That, that's that's still to be seen. Christian, to end for both of you, we'll start with Tom. Um, where the state of the game is right now worldwide? I think to my point earlier, we've got a fantastic smorgasbord of things in cricket. Um, but w- what we would like to see is for the the different formats, um, and in particular for international cricket and domestic leagues to be um, for, for there to be some coherent leadership around that and and how those hang together to make sure that both domestic leagues, which are an important part of the future of the game, and international cricket, which is the history of the game, and and we want them both to be a part of the game's future. Um, And there are a number of things that we'd like to see to facilitate that. Um, And and balancing up global revenue distribution is one of those things and making the product in international cricket as, as attractive as it can be by retaining the best players in international cricket as well. Um, you know, we'd love to see those couple of things uh, and, and for the game to come together around the world to keep working on on making sure the structure of the game is um, is optimised and that we make the most of the smorgasbord of opportunity that's there. Andrew, from your point of view, I know we've got all our other problems running around Cricket South Africa at the moment. And one of the one of them that worries me is you, you, the figures you talk about, uh, $8 million for a, for a one day or a T20. Where's that money gone? Where does it go? Well, well, that money effectively goes into funding us for the next three, four years. So if you, if you look at the structure of cricket in South Africa as a triangle, you've got protests, men and women at the top, and it goes down all the way to schools at the bottom. That money that we got from India has to fund that entire process for the next three years, which is deeply concerning to, to SACA because we don't think it's financially viable to do so. So from a budgetary point of view, the money gets spent, um, but it's it's almost you can't afford to fuel for your BMW type scenario. So maybe you need to look at not having a BMW. Um, so so those are the concerns there. I think on a positive thing is players have never been in as strong a position as they are. And as a players association, that's a positive. And that's the ability to earn, the ability to make a good living, which wasn't always there in cricket. Cricket was almost one of the worst paying sports. It's, that has changed and is changing still. And those are positives. But Tom's points are, are 100%. Obviously, we, we all aligned on this at Matika. is around the structure of the game. And we need wise leadership. Um, otherwise, that, that structure can break itself, to put it that way. So we could probably have a session with you, Louis, for three, four hours going through every element yeah. of it. It's a, it's a fantastic topic to discuss if you love sport and if you love cricket. But, yeah, we need wise leadership. And, and fortunately, and I'm punting Tom here, who's a great CEO, and we've got a great board. It's, we are, I believe, and I say this, openly the thought leaders on where the game goes and how we should be thinking about the game and, and it's a, a big part of Tom's work and our work is to need to be the thought leaders and not allow self-interest dictate how we think and I think that often happens in cricket amongst all the countries in the ICC self-interest dictates and if self-interest dictates then you don't look at the good for the for everybody and at, at FICA we do look at the good for everybody um, and that's a big positive about the organisation. Well, I can say on behalf of every single cricket-loving person in South Africa and I guess around the world, thank goodness for FICA and and SACA and organizations like that because with the greatest respect, if we would have left the game in the hands of the administrators that we have around the world at the moment, I think we'd all be in a spot to bother. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tom Moffat, the Chief Executive of FICA, the Global Cricketer's Voice, and uh, to our regular guest, Andrew Britzko, for joining us from the South African Cricketers Association on tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, Louis. Thanks, Thanks, Louis.
Here's Andrew. That's, Thanks, guys. That's yes. tonight's show. Have yourself a pleasant evening. And as always, be nice to each other. Talk to you again tomorrow. Bye for now.